I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2, where we hear of that story where Jesus turns water to wine. We also want to see this in connection with, as the prophets of old longed to see, they waited for the Messiah to come who would bring that messianic joy. We also read from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 25, a few verses from there. We'll pick up our reading in Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6. Before we come to read the Lord's word, shall we ask for his blessing? Heavenly Father, we pray that again that you would send your spirit now in this hour that we would be filled with joy as we hear the good news proclaimed that the Son has come, that the Messiah has come, who brings joy, that sins are forgiven in his name. Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with such gladness, with such joy, that as we leave here, we would say with the psalmist that surely it was good for us to be in the house of the Lord, and surely we have tasted and seen that you are good. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As far from God's word in that place. Turn also now to John chapter 2, where we see this wonderfully fulfilled as Jesus and his disciples make their way as guests to a wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. 
This, the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's what we see this morning, people of God. The glory of Christ revealed as he begins his public ministry. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, that we might receive grace upon grace, overabundance, glory on full display and grace and truth. That's what we, we see here in this story of the wedding at Cana. It's really a simple story, isn't it? A wedding uh, at Cana, it's a human interest account, a wedding gone wrong with all of our, our variables in our modern-day weddings. Something always goes wrong. It's not a complicated story. It's rather direct and obvious. There are social ramifications that hang on the bride and the groom, particularly the, the, the groom because it's his crisis. He's the one in charge of the wine, and it's a disaster. The guests have arrived. It's the third day, according to the text, and the wine is already gone. And boys and girls' weddings were a big deal. They, they typically lasted for seven days. And the Israelites loved weddings. There was music. There was dancing. And the bride and the groom were paraded with their wedding party at night throughout the streets. And their bridal party lit their wicks and trimmed their wicks and lit them as they followed them to their new home. And the first week of the bride and the groom's new married life wasn't dedicated to some honeymoon, but all doors were open in their new house. And they had a reception. And you can imagine it like a a giant courtyard in the backyard with all of the arches lined with flowers and vines and, and decorations and all of the tables there as, uh, as they meet in the middle, as they were throwing a celebration. But the most essential element to the wedding fe- festival was missing, the wine. The wine which gladdens the heart of man has all been gone. It's all been drunk. And we're not given a reason why. Maybe it was a failure of counting guests. Maybe the bridegroom miscalculated the amount that people would drink or the amount of people that would show up, but nevertheless, it was all gone. And we know from this story that the couple was evidently well-to-do. They, they had pulled all the stops. They had, they had stone water jars highlighting that they weren't poor. They had enough to wash the feet of a great number of guests. They had a, a master of ceremonies who was in charge of making arrangements. And yet the whole week is on the brink of disaster of being ruined because the wine is all gone. And perhaps we might not think of that as a big deal, but, but it was essential to a Jewish wedding. Wine had to be there. It was reserved for this kind of occasion. Eating and drinking was the sign that a covenant had been ratified, that it was legitimized. Aaron and his sons ate and drank when they came. Moses came down from the mountain. When God married himself to Israel, so to speak, the, the priests ate and drank. And Jesus says of his own wedding that there will be eating and drinking. It was essential to a proper wedding. And the the reputation of the bridegroom could forever be ruined. It would be the same as saying that he wasn't serious about his marriage, that he didn't value his wife highly enough to provide a proper celebration. And then you have all of the community gossip for years. What an embarrassing wedding. This, this was the wedding that didn't have any wine. And still worse, it was entirely possible that the guests could present litigation. They could sue the bride and the groom because they came bringing their gifts, but they were not received properly with a proper reception. 
The whole thing is a disaster. It's a, it's a catering crisis. Yet the Apostle John, his focus is not on the bride or the groom. Notice they aren't even given names in the story. His focus is not on the wedding festivities, but his, his focus is on the back room in the reception hall. His focus is on the kitchen staff. It's as if he sees in the back room of the reception hall the beginning of something. And that's how he says his focus is on the beginning. This is the beginning of Jesus' signs. We remember previously he announced that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and he has dwelt among us. It reflects that creative language of Genesis 1 where that same Word is spoken, where God creates all things. And Jesus is that self-same creative word. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's an amazing statement. God in flesh, God incarnate as man. And, and not soon after that, that creative word is spoken both in Genesis and in John. We, we have following that an account of a wedding. In Genesis 2, we, we read the very first wedding where God addresses the incompleteness of his first creation, or his, his crowning creation, his man. And he follows him up with bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He begins something new. He begins his image bearers throughout this earth. And, and so too here we read that, that John introduces to us a, a, a wedding where we're pointed forward to a new bridegroom. It's the beginning of Jesus' signs. It's an important word. He calls them signs, not miracles. He takes what is normal, what is natural, and he transforms it to point to his supernatural work. They take on a new form to point beyond themselves to his redemptive purpose on earth. And this is the first, he says, of his signs here at a wedding, a wedding with a crisis, to which Jesus, in the humility of his human flesh, is but a humble guest. And evidently, we read that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been watching what's been unfolding over the last few days and sees Jesus arriving to the feast with his disciples, and she run, runs to report what's, what's been going on, what's developing to him. And there's a hint that she has perhaps some involvement. Perhaps she's related to the bride or to the groom and had some responsibilities with the wedding. Maybe she's helping with the arrangements. But nevertheless, she runs to her son and says they have no wine. She understands the social stigma that's taking place. She understands that this is a crisis, and she does what any mother would do. She reports to her son. And of course, in the story, we know that Mary is aware who her son is. Her faith is in God's word as has been made clear to us. Do according to me, according to your word, she said to the angel. We know that she knows about her son and her faith is in God and and God's word. She's completely reliant on her son. In fact, some have speculated that perhaps at this point in the story that it could very well be that Joseph had already passed and now all she has is her son. And she comes with her need. But then strikingly, notice Jesus' response. It sounds like a response in which he takes a step back from her her would-be embrace. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not a a disrespectful response, at least not the effect that it has in our language. It's a typical greeting. He's saying something like, lady, ma'am, a respectful greeting that was used every day in that world, but but a greeting that was worlds apart from a, a son to his mother. And Jesus is saying that this crisis has 
nothing to do with him. It's not on his calendar. It's, it doesn't fit his timeline. It's not according to his hour. It's trivial according to what he has weighing upon his mind at the beginning of his public ministry. And of course, you know, John uses this word, this hour, quite a, quite a lot in his gospel. To him and to Jesus, it's like the, the ticking of the clock that, that keeps ticking until it makes its final mark at, at the culmination of Jesus' ministry as he hangs upon a cross, as he reveals the work of his Father, the glory of his Father in the, the redemption of, of his people from their sins. Jesus has his eyes fixed on the culmination of his work. And he gently tells his mother, Mary, this isn't why I've come. This isn't the hour for me to, to reveal my glory. The focus of our Lord that is that he's the true bridegroom, that he has come, come to do the will of his Father in heaven, not the will of his mother on earth. And in fact, he's telling Mary, I have come to deal with a much greater crisis, with a much far more desperate need. And it's not that he's reluctant to help. We see that played out through the story. But rather that his eye is, is looking upon his own cross. And that Mary must see that, that she needs his help, not as son, but as Lord. His hour is not yet. The hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion, where he will drink his own cup. The cup that his father has ordained for him to drink. The cup of his wrath. And he will drink it and take it to its, his lips and drink it dry as the wedding the wine has run out of the wedding at Cana. And yet Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he does have concern for someone else's wedding. And we read that Mary shakes off this gentle rebuke. She gathers the servants. She tells them to listen to whatever he says. Do whatever he says. She's a model of faith in that way. But she's not a, a mediator. She's not a co-mediator or a mediatrix. She's not the neck that turns the face of God. She's a simple disciple with simple faith. Her faith is in her son. And we see Jesus respond to action because of his obedience to his Father in heaven. And, and that's what we see develop as Jesus makes his way to these stone jars with the servants. He is beginning to reveal his glory that he has received from the Father, full of grace and truth, revealing himself to be the Christ, the one that was promised now in the flesh. Because he sees a deeper need than the social miscues of a wedding. He sees a problem as it relates to all of humanity. He sees your problem and my problem. Because if you pull on the threads of this simple story, this simple human interest account, it's a story about us, you and me. It, and you quickly realize that the problem isn't simply that, that the wine is all gone. Because even if the bridegroom went to the store, so, so to speak, and, and picked up more wine, that wine would be gone too. The problem is that the wine never lasts. It always becomes depleted. And that means the joy never lasts. The gladness of heart never lingers long. And each of us becomes like an addict longing for the next fix of joy of what will make me happy. A source of happiness that will never run out. And we, we drink from broken cisterns. And, and Jesus sees sin that has rendered us incapable of producing lasting joy. The law of Moses, which was given that we would have fellowship with God, weakened by the sinful flesh, hasn't moved us closer to God. It's unable in itself. And so John watches then. He watches as the true bridegroom goes with the servants to the back room of this wedding feast into the kitchen. And that's where his eyes are fixed. 
He watches as Jesus sees six stone water jars. And he tells the servants to bring these jars, to take the jars and and fill them with water. And the servants fill these six stone water jars up to the brim so that nothing more could be added to them. And some speculate somewhere near 160, 180 gallons of water. And notice that they weren't any stone jars, but these were the ones used for the rites of of purification according to the Mosaic law. And notice the number six, a number to represent their incompleteness. And now he fills them to the brim. John says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He takes the instruments of Old Testament cleansing, and the first thing he does with them is is fills them to the brim, as if to say the old has ceased. There's no more room for anything old, because behold, the new has come. It takes away all of the shadows that cling to these stone jars and shines a light on them and shows the truth of what they represent. Simple jars for cleansing the the feet of dirty wedding guests as they made their way to the the wedding on the dusty streets of of Jerusalem, of Judea. And, And their contents reflected that, water to cleanse. But now, boys and girls, Jesus doesn't perform a magic trick. Never say that. Never believe that. It's not a party favor. But as the Christ, as God in the flesh, he recreates these jars. He transforms their purpose. You might think of this way. Prior to his arrival, they they were used to hold the law. But now that he has come, they are transformed to be vessels of his grace. That's the sign. They point to the law being fulfilled in him. And out of its fulfillment overabundant grace. The whole expectation of the Old Testament was that when the Christ came, he would bring with him the overabundance. It would be a time of refreshment, something that the law could never do within itself. It needed to be fulfilled. And so symbolized in the stone pots, we see the sign that the law is filled to the brim and that Christ now has come to fulfill it, that he might dispense his grace. It's a messianic miracle. Isaiah saw a feast in which there was a covering, a veil was cast over the celebration, an overcast day with with gray clouds, and the guests were unable to celebrate. Instead, each had a veil on their own faces, covering with sackcloth and ashes and mourning and sadness, unable to celebrate. And they lived their lives masquerading from table to table, hiding their sorrow, hiding their trouble that's written on their tear-stained eyes. Unable to celebrate. With the brooding angst floating about the room, their inability to celebrate because of the uninvited, the unintended guest over the shoulder he sees of every person. Isaiah sees death. Every face that would light up with a semblance of joy falls to the floor, for death is the result at man's attempt at finding joy. And it's the payment he owes. Inability, shame, and suffering, and sorrow, and sin. Everything that that causes the joy to run out when the wine which gladdens the heart has all run dry. The issue at Cana is not physical wine, but that the Old Covenant administration under the law of Moses couldn't produce joy without the coming of Christ. The law apart from grace is joyless. Religion apart from Christ is empty. 
It's, it runs out of its own resources. It empties itself dry. And, and you know this, and I know this from our own experience. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we live Christianity as a simple dull list of do's and don'ts, apart from Christ, it's a miserable experience. Failure after failure after failure. Sorrow. We look inward. We see our own sin. We see our own shame. We see our own inability. A miserable experience. Anxious toil for anxious bread, weighed down by sin and guilt. Joyless because we have drunk from broken cisterns, filled with foul water. And the expectation of God's people for thousands of years was that when Christ would come, He would be the bringer of joy. He will restore the fortunes of those who trust in Him and exceed them in overabundance and joy and gladness. And wine is the symbol of the beginning of His kingdom come to earth. The prophet Amos looked at Zion and he said, there's coming a day when this mountain, when the Christ will come, this mountain will drip with sweet wine. Like an avalanche, boys and girls, wine rushing down like a river down the mountainside. Or the prophet Joel who says, the threshing floors shall be filled with grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Or the passage that we read together in Isaiah, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of rich food, of of, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of, well, of wine well-refined. And on that day, he will swallow up forever the covering that is cast over all peoples. That was the expectation, that God himself will swallow up death. They didn't know when it would be fulfilled. And brothers and sisters, that, that's what catches John's eye. Notice the contrast between Jesus' words and the master of the feast. Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. And listen carefully to what the master of the feast says. He, he runs to the bridegroom of the wedding and he explodes with praise. Everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Unwittingly, he describes Jesus' entire ministry. And the key word is is now. My hour is not yet come. And the master of the feast says, now. Now here it is. In fact, look at what Jesus says in in verse 8. Now draw some of the wine out and take it. And when the master of the feast tastes of the water, now become wine. He exclaims, you have kept the best until now. Now, now, now. Now it has come. And boys and girls and brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when God says now, he means now. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, he means now. And when God tells us here in John 2 that the kingdom is now come, that kingdom is now here. Everything is better than before. Everything that is better than that it preceded it. The quality of the celebration is greater than it was before. These are moral statements. The poor wine has been drunk. The good wine is now available. The best is saved for last. The Christ is here. The time of joy and feasting. Jesus himself would say in Matthew 9, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And now he is here. John the baptizer came announcing him out in the desert wearing camel's hair and eating wild locusts and honey, a sort of 
ascetic adherence to the law in preparation of the Christ, but the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples that their master comes eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. For John neither came eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The best is saved for last, and it's saved for the least. It's saved for sinners. It's for tax collectors. It's for those who have run out of their own resources, for those who have no drop of joy left in their life, those who have drunk freely of the poor wine in need of grace. He saves the best for you, dear sinner. The the best wine is for you to drink to drink his wine, to celebrate his work. That's what we look forward to this coming Lord's Day when we come to the table of the Lord. We, we taste a foretasting of the king's own wine. Because that's where this miracle really points us to, doesn't it? To the bridegroom's cross, to his hour, where he will turn not water, but blood into wine. In the old covenant, Moses could turn water into blood, in reflection of the Lord's judgment. But Jesus is the one and only who can turn blood into wine in reflection of the Lord's grace. Our Lord says, Take, drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what we foretaste, a portion of his choicest wine, his own blood for your sins, and the best is saved for the last, and it's for the least, and it's the superlative supply. The final thing we see this morning, John writes this gospel that you would, you would know who it is that gives this wine. And isn't that one of the surprising features of this story, given everything that precedes it in chapter 2? The Word made flesh, who is with God, who, who is God, who made all things, and nothing was made apart from Him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And, and we read in chapter 2, the, this is the first of His signs. The Creator has come to a wedding. The one who instituted marriage is a humble guest. The true bridegroom of His church brings His own wine. And he doesn't do it for the praise of men. In fact, the master of the feast praises the groom on the brink of social disaster. The gift goes to the undeserving. The remarkable thing is that that no one at the feast knew where the wine had come from. And John is very particular to say that the only ones who knew were a couple of servants and the disciples in the back room away from everyone else. They witnessed the glory of Christ made manifest. And it's a fact that bewilders John throughout this gospel. No one knew. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and they did not know him. He comes to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was dumbfounded. And he says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things. The crowds eat the loaves of bread, but they don't know where it comes from. Instead, they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, who we know? Not believing that he was the son of God. He comes before Pilate, and he does not know where his kingdom comes from. But what is truth, he says. And he hangs on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know. But John writes these things that we would know. 
that we would believe. In chapter 20, verse 30, he gives a summary statement of this book saying, Jesus did many other signs and miracles that are are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe in him, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Here at Cana, his disciples bear witness to the manifestation of his glory, and he gives you a foretaste of his kingdom. And it's as if John wants us to come into the basement hall of this reception and and behold with him the glory of the Christ, to taste his wine, to see and to know where it comes from, that the Christ is now here in the world, though they knew it not. And he brings his own wine. Many pastors have said at weddings using this passage to say that it's important for a wedding couple to invite Jesus to their wedding, to, to have him as get an invitation to their marriage. And it's a nice thing to say. We want Christian and Christ-centered marriages. But by all accounts, the, the couple at the wedding at Cana had no idea. They didn't know that Jesus was at their wedding. It's not so much that we invite Christ to our wedding, but that we make sure that we are guests to his wedding. As we witness the, man, the transformation of water to wine that Christ has come to usher in a long-awaited uh, a day of redemption, a, long, a long-awaited kingdom, messianic fulfillment, day of grace. Didn't Isaiah say, it will be said on that day, this is our God? We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, the covenant God. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Dear brothers and sisters, have you been waiting for him? He is here. He is here to be believed upon, to live in his kingdom, to taste of his wine. Now he has come. Now is his ministry of grace and truth. Now is it fulfilled what was promised. Now awaits his wedding day, the return of the bridegroom to receive his bride, the church, to drink afresh and anew the wine that is befitting the greatest celebration in all of history, the wedding of, of Christ, the Lamb, and his bride, the church. And John was often fixated with this idea of bridegroom of Christ as the groom, and he writes of that even later in Revelation. He will say, in Revelation, come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the Lamb. And he writes there, and, and then I heard what appeared to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for our Lord, the God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. You need an invitation to that day. You need to make sure you're on that guest list because it will be the overabounding, never-ending, consummating joy of all of history where the wine will never run out, where the joy will never cease, and your heart will be made glad in his salvation. Have you run out of joy, congregation? Have you run out of the gladness or the, the wine that gladdens the heart. Come be a guest at his wedding. You're invited to come. The king has, has sent out his servants to gather many to the feast. 
Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a great wedding feast. And that the king has sent out all of his servants to call those who were invited to the feast. But they wouldn't come. I've prepared my dinner, he says. My oxen, my fatted calves are slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention. They went about their business. They went to their farms, even killing some of the servants. Those invited were not worthy to come. And so the king tells his servants to go to every highway, every byway, every gutter, and fill his wedding hall for the feast. And he extends his invitation to every, every sinner to come, even those in the gutter. Is your life perhaps in the gutter? Are you exhausted? Are your lips parched? Come, the wedding of the Lamb. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Never mind what clothes you wear. He'll give you the proper garments. He'll make sure you're worthy to fellowship with Him. He'll adorn you with His righteousness. He'll put you at the head table. You can drink of His wine, which never runs out. And there's more than enough for all of the guests. And He will turn your sorrow into joy. He brings joy. He brings grace upon grace. Are you troubled in heart? Are you worried over your sin? Watch as he makes and takes these stone jars which hold the law and makes them hold the wine of heaven. Watch as he fills the law to the brim and out of it you can drink of his grace. Watch as he manifests his glory in this and believe in that. That the God who has come in flesh dwells with sinners and he can transform your life too. And he intends to do that. And by his blood spilled on the cross, an overabundant provision has been made to assure you that it is accomplished. And by the outpouring of his Spirit from heaven to assure you that you are invited to come. And that by believing, have abundant life in him. A joyful life. And may you say with the master of the feast, Lord, indeed, you have saved the best for last. And it's even for me, the least. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made provision in a joyless world. A a world which, through our first parents, Adam and Eve, sank it into dryness, decay, brokenness, where the wine always runs out, and that you have come, that you would would bring the wine of heaven to fill us to the brim with your grace, that we might have joy in the midst of a sorrowful world, a world filled with sin and failure and joylessness, that we could have joy in the one who has fulfilled what was lacking of us, who has showered us with his grace and invites us to be at his wedding. What a wonderful gift, Father. We ask that we would meet it with humility and with faith. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.